in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate at the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement, and amazement at all that had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico, portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and you know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in, in ignorance, as did also the rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, and this was fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God, that he may send the Christ appointed to you, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring for all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. What a passage. And so God's people, we like to say this back to him at the end of every scripture. We say, for all flesh is like grass and all of its glory, like the flowers of the field, the grass withers and the flowers fall. Stands forever. Amen and amen. What a passage. In Yellowstone National Forest, um, there was an experiment exactly 30 years ago. Um, it went under some like significant changes. You've seen some of the signs that says, excuse the mess, right? But it wasn't that type of renovation project. Instead, biologists wanted to reintroduce a little species called the gray wolf back into Yellowstone. You see, there was a problem. Uh, back in the 30s, in the 30s, they actually removed the wolf from Yellowstone. And by doing that, right, they wanted to preserve like the trophy of Yellowstone National Forest. And that was, of course, the elk. And so the elk was big and it was majestic. It had the, you know, the, the, the horns and these wolves were driving these elk out. And so people said, let's save the elk by removing the wolves. 
Well, the elk didn't just survive. Boy, did they thrive. And they multiplied and they multiplied again and over and over and over again. So in the mid-90s, the biologist said, well, what if we reintroduced this gray wolf back into Yellowstone? What would happen then? Well, what they saw next was truly remarkable. The elk, of course, they got thinned out a little bit. The wolves are predators, by the way. But it did more than just pick off one elk at another. They would actually chase the elk. And so the migratory uh, patterns of the elk began to change. Elk are big and fat and just lumbersome. And so with that, they would stand at the riverbanks and create erosion. They were also big and hungry, and so they ate everything in sight. And so as these elk began to move and continued to move, they began to see some things. The riverbanks literally began to harden again. Trees in just six short years quadrupled not only in size but in girth. And that's when the changes began to happen. Birds began coming back into this area. Not just birds, but ducks. Because there were so many trees that continued to grow, beavers showed up and did what beavers do. They would gnaw down the, little, uh, the trees and be, uh, create dams, and then the beavers showed up. In all of this, uh, the wolves also picked off coyotes. And so with the coyotes being running out of there, then mice and rabbits showed up. Because there were trees for the birds, then hawks showed up. And on and on it goes. Yellowstone, after 30 years of experience, has truly gone through an an enormous transformation. Truly amazing to see what we see there. With one tiny action, reintroducing one species, the entire ecosystem has been changed. A ripple effect of one decision. Well, that's what this passage is about. Transformation. A transformation of one moment, one moment in time, one decision, and then there was a ripple effect that we will continue to just not even understand to its fullest. And so that's what this morning we really want us to think about and pray about as we look at Acts chapter 3, is the idea that you and I can both be physically and also spiritually transformed. And so the first point is this idea of physical transformation. Look back at verses 1 through 10 and you see just this, I mean, just a flurry of action. And what I love about Luke and the way that he, he writes is that we can, we can just see the pictures by seeing the, ten, the syntax and all of the verbs and the action. This is a passage full of joy and gladness and, and leaping, but it didn't start that way. So this is a picture of the Temple Mount. This is something that we probably have a hard time understanding. It is just so very vast. Some say that this is probably five football fields wide or long and maybe even three wide. It is enormous. And so the story takes place here with this beautiful and wonderful spance of of location. It truly is what they call here in the scriptures, it's the beautiful gate. Because that's the only word that we can really understand is what we are seeing, what is in front of us is truly beautiful. But the entrance into this space are two huge doors. 
Some say it was 75 feet tall and it's a double door. And so when you entered, you knew you were going into something. We hear that Peter and John, they're headed to worship as they always do. We know in Acts chapter 2, they regularly go to worship. We know it's about 3 in the afternoon. They're just doing what they've always done. And they run into a man. He's lame. Chapter 4 tells us he's been lame. He's been in this condition for 40 years. Think about you if you're pressing in on 40. That's all of your life. This man had to be taken, literally picked up and dropped off every single day. Then picked up and dropped back off at his home every single day. He had to beg for money. He had to beg people. He was pretty shrewd in that he knew that religious people, you know, we, we were kind of a generous folk, right? And so as people were going to church, right, he was hoping that a little pity, right, a little bit of penance would be able to be able to capture their heart and be able to give them a little bit. And so John and Peter, they arrive at this beautiful gate. It's huge. It's vast. Some kind of handcrafted tool, been able to etch something in the door possibly. It's grand, it's impressive, it's beautiful. And that's what's in front of them, beauty. But what's around them is anything but beauty. What they find is a man who's been called ugly his whole life, four full decades, refined to himself, dependent on others, socially just pushed to the side. He depends on others literally for everything. To come and to go and to give and to spend and cook. Notice it's not just his physical ailments though. Notice where he's at. He's on the outside of the gate. Because he's even, he's not even allowed to go inside. That's Jewish law. And so he's not just ostracized, right? He's shamed. You don't belong here. You can have a few pennies, but that's about it. Luke has written us two amazing books, the Gospel of Luke and this book of Acts. And over and over, Luke wants to come for the underdog. We see the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born, shepherds on the outskirts of town, and them being the first ones to witness this wonderful a miracle, and it just starts a whole of Luke. And now Acts, he's up to it again. Because he wants us to know those people who are shamed, those people who do not belong, those people who are literally on the outside, guess what? The kingdom, under faith in Jesus Christ, belongs to you as well. Amen? This is the kingdom of God. And so this man is physically broken. He's financially broken, but he's surrounded by and reminded that people can come and go as they please. Not only are they free, right, but they're welcomed into this space. And that's when we see in 7 through 10, we see this, this healing come, come about. It starts in verse 6, where, or four, in verse 4, where Peter just looks at him and goes, listen, I don't have any money. And even if I had money, that's not what you want. And he goes, huh, okay. And he kind of shrugs a little bit like that. 
I mean, this is amazing that they stare at each other. They make a little bit of eye contact. But then he disappoints him right away. like, I don't have any money. And even if I had it, I'm not going to give it to you. And then there was the conjunction, but, he says. However, there's more to this story. But what I give you, I give you in the name of Jesus. Here's what I do have. And in the name of Jesus, Peter speaks. And in the name of Jesus, Peter commands. And in the name of Jesus, with all audacity, Peter reaches out his hand and grabs another. A miracle takes place. It mentions his feet, his ankles. And immediately something was made strong. So doctors say, I know because I asked, because I didn't know, that there's multiple things going on in this very moment. If you have a fever and it comes upon you and it leaves, you're like, oh, the fever's gone. But that's not, that's, there's so much more than that, than that that's happening here. We've got multiple issues, maybe even compounding issues, one on another. Four decades of non-use, meaning four decades of bones that continue to deform. Joints that begin to continue to harden. Ligaments that would not work. Muscles that would be full of atrophy. Circulation issues. And we could go on and on and I'm not because I don't know all the terms. But in some way, in that very instant, what would have been a modern miracle for him just to potentially get up and lean on something and maybe even brace himself, that would be the miracle. This guy stands, walks, and then leaps. This is the picture that's in front of us. And this is what is drawing the crowd. They all know him. Peter and John would have likely passed him yesterday, but didn't have this type of encounter. Years and years and years of suffering, boom, immediately he's healed. Muscles work, circulation is flowing, joints. I mean, it's all working magnificently. The hundred dash, the hurdles, I mean, all of it. I mean, just, I mean, just you name it. He can do it all. But where did he go? Where did he run to? Where is he excited about going? He didn't go home to show his mom or a wife. He didn't even go into the city and just run the streets. It tells us he went into the temple, a place that he had never gone before because he's not allowed. So that is what is beautiful that day. It wasn't the gate And it wasn't the splendor of the temple. It was this miracle. He had been transformed. He's walking and he's praising God, a place where he had been shunned forever. He's now shouting with praise, an outsider becoming an insider in a moment. The lame man is leaping. He's brought near. He's full of joy. He's full of gladness. He's full of worship. And we could go on and on and on and on we see something remarkable that day. But that's not it. Verses 11 and 15 tells us it's more than just a physical transformation that we see. 
we actually see a spiritual transformation that happens in this man's life, but also in just where the, where the crowds are, are gathering. And so something very spiritual is happening. I mean, sure, the physical something is something we'll be talking about forever, but there's something deep inside this man, deep inside even the apostles and then the crowd that we cannot explain. So what do we talk about or what do we even think about when we read a passage on miracles? Miracles is a very spiritual word, right? And so you and I have to wrestle with a passage like this. Do we believe it or not? And I don't know if there's an in-between because that's just where we're at because what we're reading is not logical. It's not scientific. It's not pragmatic at all. It's 100% spiritual in all of its form. So let me remind us, who is writing this book? A doctor. And not just a doctor, Dr. Luke, but he's an investigator. He's a little bit OCD. Details matter to him. The word eyewitness is one of his favorite words. He wants to pen an accurate account, both of the life of Jesus and then also the life of the church. He writes this about 30 years after this occurrence happened. So we could have had plenty of eyewitnesses to be able to renounce anything that he puts on paper. He has credibility, not in the scientific world, but also in the history world. Luke doesn't take this for granted. He looks into it. You know why? Because he wasn't there. He's likely not converted at this point. He's a Gentile. So he's learning of this secondhand like all of us. There are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And this guy gets two chapters devoted to him. Chapters 3 and 4 create a little bit of a whirlwind of trouble when it comes to this healing. Luke has done his research because he's on a quest to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, and the church has done and is doing what he said he would do. And so these eyewitnesses said, no, this really did happen. So you can throw it out if you want to, but just know that this is as much a historical document as anything. And what we believe is that miracles do happen both today as they did 2,000 years ago, because the same Spirit of God is able to do the impossible. That's just what we believe. And we believe it because it's not in our own power. Look at verse 12. Where is, where is the dialogue? The dialogue is about Jesus and Jesus alone. This is where they're really having uh, lots of uh, dialogue or debate amongst one another. There's no real reason, right, for this to happen other than the name of Jesus is in the middle of this story over and over and over again. It's almost as if Luke has moved on past the guy and the healing in order to share a little bit about Jesus again. Verse 12 says it explicitly, take your eyes off of us. Take your eyes off of us. We're not to get the credit here. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. 
And so if you think that we're doing some kind of magic trick, if we're doing something special on our own merit or our own power, that's not true. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And so Peter is saying, stop looking at us. Look instead to Jesus. And that's because it's God's ultimate plan. That's what he wants to do is truly restore. We need physical pictures. We need things to remind ourselves of spiritual realities. Because when we see it in real time and space, it forces us to go deeper. For hundreds of years, the church, or the Jewish nation, wanted to know their place and where the time was. And they were always looking like, is God really at play here? And is he doing something in our lives? And there was this question or this wrestling of like, well, Lord, we believe you. However, it's really hard to, to know exactly what's going on. Especially when you read verses like this. Isaiah chapter 35. And cha- Isaiah uh, chapter 35 is this picture of a world that we all want to be a part of. Just listen to some of this poetic words. Isaiah 35 says this. And then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams break forth in the desert. The burning sand that's so hot to touch shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground will become a spring of water. And so the Jews would look and read that passage and look around and go, there's nothing that looks anything like that. And then when Jesus arrives, he begins to do some things that really got everybody, just everybody's attention. So much so that when John the Baptist is about to lose his head and die, He sends a messenger to Jesus and says, Jesus, are you really the Christ? Are you really the one that we have been looking for? And what does Jesus say? He references back to this prophecy. I just want you to see what I have done. Have you seen the blind begin to see? Have you seen the deaf ears begin to be unstopped? Have you been able to see the things that didn't work, the lame, actually come in real places. And they're like, yes, Lord, we've seen that. And now we believe. But the problem is, Jesus leaves and leaves them all by themselves. And now the church is like, what do we do now? Without you there, we believed with you here, but now that you're gone, what what do we do now? Well, Luke is trying to tell us, again, back to the very beginning of Luke, the things that Jesus began to do and teach, he has not stopped doing. It's a continuation. He handed off this assignment. As he ascended into heaven, he said the promised Holy Spirit will come, and he handed the assignment off to the early church. And then the early church handed it off to, our, to the second century uh, Christians. And then they handed it off again. On and on and on it goes because the same mission of Jesus continues. And so when we are a part of the messianic age, 
this age where we are living in the Spirit, we are living also in the Spirit of transformation all around us because Jesus Christ is making all things new. And so there's spiritual transformation that's underneath the surface that is wonderful and good. But we also see a pattern, a pattern of what Peter likes to do in these moments. I want you to remember in chapter 2 what happens. The early church gets filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They begin to speak in other people's languages that they can understand. And what they're saying, right, in another language are the wonders and the awe of who God is. People are hearing of the wonders of God in their own language by country people, like literally country people, and they're going, what is this? Peter calls a timeout and says, let me explain it to you. And then he preaches a sermon. And he preaches a sermon all about Jesus. I don't know if you've got your Bibles, but flip to uh, chapter 2. So in this moment where everybody, he's drawn a crowd, right? And the, the, they're like, what is this? I want, I want to know what it is. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, and this is the pattern that, that Peter takes. Jesus is simply the man, right? Jesus is the man in verse 22. He's the crown of all humanity. He is the Christ of all the people. So if you've got a little underlining, you just go, okay, this sermon is about Jesus the man. Then in verse 23, Jesus also has some type of redemptive plan that is about to go forward. This plan is from God's perspective, not just man's uh, perspective. That God is sovereign over all things and that he has foredained a plan for himself. You then drop to verse uh, 24 and you see not only God or Jesus is the man and there is a foreordained plan of salvation, but he is victorious over sin and death because of his resurrection. And he is then named the Messiah in verse 33 through 36. That I believe in you. So Jesus, the man who has a plan, that Jesus has a victory over all things and is the Messiah this is what Peter wants to do. There's something spectacular. That's the pattern. Something spectacular, and let me tell you about Jesus. And so what do we see here in verse three, uh, chapter 3? Chapter 3, you see this unbelievable miracle, a miracle beyond miracles. And in verse 13, we see Jesus as the servant. We then see in verse 14, Jesus Christ as the Holy One. Again in verse 14, Jesus as the righteous one. And then in verse 15, the author of life. The pattern of miracle, right? And confirmation, miracle, then preaching, something spectacular, let me tell you about Jesus. That's the pattern. Why? Because Jesus, or God is not just about the show. And he doesn't want to just be impressive and wow everybody. He wants our ears to be opened about the person and the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. That's what he wants. And so maybe you are impressed by this miracle. I surely have been. I've been inspired by it. But the spiritual transformation is so much more important. Because sure, this man may have had a club foot or two. And he was able to walk. But what was more important is that his soul is going to last for all eternity. 
And what he did was praise God from his innermost being, not just for his legs, but because of new life has been come to him. And so it's physical, right? It's spiritual. But Peter does something to you and me that he just really continues to press because he really wants it to be personal. He wants you to wrestle with this man's transformation. And he wants you to wrestle with this idea that maybe you need to have the exact same experience with the God of all heaven. And that's why he says in verse 17, and now, brothers, I just want to get your attention. Let the history be gone, right? Let the, the miracle be gone. I want to just focus in on you. I want you. Listen here. Listen, he says, right? Like your third grade teacher. Listen, listen. He wants to get your attention because brothers, he says, men of Israel, we're all here. We've gathered a crowd. Here's what I want you to know. You too, on a personal level, you need to make a decision that is true to you. He points to Jesus as the author of life. You and I need to wrestle with Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has come to do and why he brings, quote, refreshing upon the nation of Israel. Why he is like a pool, a spring of water in the desert. Why he is able to look like a springing deer when a man has done nothing his whole life but lay around. That's what can happen in your own soul, spiritually, personally for you. You were once dead and we can make you alive. What we offer you, we offer you in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so personally, what Peter says or what he commands, and so in the same way that he speaks, he commands and he reaches into that lame man's life, he then speaks, he commands, and he reaches into a lost generation. And he says, you must repent. You must turn back to God. That's the direction of the kingdom, to come back to God. It's an invitation of repentance. It's it's an invitation of turning away from your own effort and your own strength, right? And your own, even even your own infirmities and to trust God fully and completely over and over again so that the time of refreshing, this time of spiritual refreshing can come and soothe your physical soul. We believe in the gospel message. We believe that it liberates us on a daily basis. We will read in here that today is the day of salvation. And so maybe you're in here and you're far from Jesus. Maybe you're the one who needs to be brought near to him today. Don't leave without understanding that refreshment, right? True healing can come into your soul if you simply turn back to him. And that's why we offer just this plan of salvation to you fully and completely because it is extended to you. So in 1995, some dumb wolves went into a geographic location. And then 30 years later, everybody's scratching their head and like, what happened? Here's Luke literally 30 years removed from this moment. 
and he's writing to a guy named Theophilus who's asking, what happened? Well, on this day, what happened is that a lame man who didn't ask for faith, he asked for money. He didn't deserve healing, and yet what he got was a transformed life that will have impacts literally for generations to come. And so maybe you, spiritually, you're lame. Maybe your heart is hard. Maybe you are resistant to the Father. And you need your heart to, to, to feel again, to stand and to walk and to leap again. When's the last time your heart praised God? When have you given credit to Jesus and Jesus alone? That's the heartbeat of the local church, that we lift up the name of Jesus and watch him do what he does best, which is to change lives and send a ripple effect into the community. The geographic is amazing in that they went into the temple. It seems like they came back and it's called Solomon's Portico. It is awesome. It's beautiful. But the temple, for all it is, it is in the desert and it is hot, right? It is super hot. And then if you get closer into the temple where they went, there's an altar. And if you know anything about the altar, there was, that's where fire, like it was perpetual fire. And so not only was it a burning hot day, but it was burning hot there at the altar. I mean, it's just heat. And so everybody's like, whoo, what should we do? Well, somehow they've retreated out of the inner sanctum and they've come back into what's called the court of the Gentiles. And they're now in Solomon's portico. And Herod built this portico to one, to be impressive, but two, to give people shade, relief from the heat. And that's where they've gathered. Come in out of the sun. Come on, come on, come on. Let me. And that's when the gospel continued to go. And it was all, as almost to say, see, the shade's better than the sun. And what Peter is trying to tell you this morning is, see, Jesus is better than anything else that you can kind of conjure up on your own. Maybe you've been trying to will your way through life. Jesus wants you just to be free. Repent. Just turn over your life to him and he will save your soul this morning. Let me pray for us. And so Lord Jesus, we pray for spiritual transformation in a personal way, Lord. We pray that today is the day of salvation for someone, that someone will say, I believe this morning. I need, to turn, I need to turn back to God this morning. I need this type of refreshment in my life. Maybe there's some boldness in here that physically, you don't know where you are because maybe you want to reach out to the Lord and say, Lord, what do I do with my infirmity? This man laid there for 40 years. Peter and John passed him days on end. So we're not sure what the timing is of the Lord, but he wants to bring the kingdom into our lives. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you do what you've always done, that through the message and the proclamation of the freedom of the gospel, that people will be found liberated this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And so we're about to go into a time of communion where we all respond to Jesus. 
Um, some churches, there's an altar call where maybe one or two people come and pray. We feel like the congregation as a whole needs to respond to Jesus in some way or not. And so if you follow Jesus, if you worship Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, know that this table is for you. But maybe you're far from him. Maybe you really are struggling with him. We would encourage you just to read this passage again in your seat and just wrestle with him. But know that the promise of the Messiah is this. Isaiah 35, one more time. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Preach, brother, preach. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. That's an early spring flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with glad joy and singing. It's like there's a meadow now, a forest. The glory, and they'll point, the glory of Lebanon, that shall be given to it. And the majesty of Carmel over there. And don't forget Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will come and he will save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. The waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, a thirsty ground spring of water. In the hunt of the jackals, they're just going to lay down and the grass will become reeds and rushes. And so when Jesus came to the last table, we didn't know all that. But what Jesus was saying on the night that I was betrayed, all of those things that were undone will be me. And so I will be the deaf and I will be the lame. More than that, I will become like sin who knew no sin for you and for me. And the only way that spring will come and the only way that flowers will bloom and the only way that lame people will walk and souls will be, will be refreshed, the only way is through my blood, the blood of forgiveness for and so when we respond, we're going to sing a hymn because we want to participate in this. And so we would encourage you to come to the table. Come knowing that refreshment is yours. Salvation is offered to the